Welcome to The Real News Network. I'm in New York City, and this is Paul Jay, and reality asserts itself. Rana Faruhar is an associate editor and global business columnist for the Financial Times. She's also CNN's global economic analyst, and she joins us now in the studio. Thanks for joining us, Rana. Thanks for having me. So you know all kinds of people in the financial sector. You get to interview and talk to all kinds of leading people on various sides of this equation. Um, why aren't they more concerned of, of the systemic risk here? And, and, and what do you think is the window for this risk? Like, it, it seems that, like everybody thinks the next big one is just a, inevitable. Yeah. It's just like, is it next year or three years or four yeah. years? Like, everyone takes it for granted there's going to be another one. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, two statistics. Um, recovery cycles tend to move in 10-year periods, and we are at that point right now. 2018. So, 2018. Yeah. so we're due for a recession. Like that's statistic number one. Is that part of why they're pumping all this money Absolutely. into the military and domestic spending? Get Bingo. through 2020 before the recession ends. Bingo. Get through the midterms. Over. Who cares what the effects of an overheated economy are later? Let's keep the Republicans in office. It's an absolutely strategy and it's completely cynical. In terms of when the big one comes, um, one of the smartest sources on my book was a guy named Andy Haldane, who's uh, the chief economist for the Bank of England, very creative uh, thinker. And he did an interesting paper looking at how the, the time lag between major financial crises has actually shrunk. So, you know, we often compare the great financial crisis of 2008 to um, 1929, and that, that's fair. But there's a lot of crises in there, the peso crisis, the, NNL, the SNL crises. All those have been shrinking. So in the, from the 70s onward, as finance got bigger, the number of crises began to concentrate as well. So Andy now believes that crises come about every 15 years. So we may not be that far away from the next bubble bursting. And I could imagine, if I think about policy, what we just talked about, we're at the end of a recovery cycle. We've pumped $4 trillion in this country, $30 trillion globally, into the economy with monetary policy. So that's tapped out. We are now using fiscal policy to overheat a late-stage recovery in order to keep the Republicans in office. We are doing nothing to bolster underlying growth with educational reform, infrastructure reform, et cetera. And wages are Wages are still stagnant. Yeah. When I add all that up and play it out over the next five years, yeah, wouldn't surprise me at all if we had another financial crisis. And is, are the tools from 07, 08 still going to have effect? Like pumping, you know, zero low interest rates where you can't kind of go lower than zero or one. Yeah. Um, I guess the Fed can just throw money at banking institutions and big corporations again in terms of some other kinds of loans. But well, the Fed are these tools still going to be effective? They won't be nearly as effective as they were the last time around. In fact, one of the reasons that um, Jay Powell, the new Fed chair, is trying to normalize, as they say, monetary policy and do some rate hikes is that Republicans and Democrats know that when the next crisis comes, there's there's no more powder. You know, they've got it. They've got to get interest rates back up to a normal level so they can then drop them if there is a crisis. But we don't have that much to work with anymore. And in terms of dumping money, you can see with the quantitative easing program, the first round of money dump was pretty effective. The second round, less so, and the third, so hardly at all. So you get all these things converging, and it's not just a question of a potential crash and three, four, five years, whatever. These moments are almost also moments when one of the alternatives is war. 
Well, mm. it's always a good distraction, isn't it? You know, when there's internal problems, and you see this everywhere in every country, when there's internal problems, I think politicians often try and um, uh, cause trouble beyond their borders. In fact, I would argue that the Russian election manipulation is in some ways a response to Putin's own um, concerns about his own regime at home. You know, I mean, uh, he's a Petro dictator that was having problems at home long before the, the issues started in our 2016 elections. But, but I'd also argue, assuming they did interfere, and in, in, in the public domain, I don't think there's any hard evidence yet about the state's involvement in mm. it, but let's say they did. It's, it's a, such a distraction to how it's being talked about. It's like, this is not the burning issue of our times. Well, I, I've been cracking a joke on the real news, <laughs> which I'll crack again. Uh, the reason the American elites don't like the Russians manipulating and rigging the American elections, because only the American elites are allowed to rig American <laughs> elections. Well, How well, dare you, a foreigner do it? You could actually argue and Americans that, can rig other people's elections. Right. You could actually argue that they have, in the sense that our largest and richest companies, platform technology firms, the FANGs, have been used uh, you know, to do that manipulation. And, and unlimited financing now. I mean, it's, it's not an accident that the person that helps elect uh, Trump is Robert Mercer, who's exactly. part of a high-speed quantitative tra trading company. Exactly. And the role of finance in deciding who gets to run is a heck of a lot more powerful than any Russians. Yeah, uh, that's, that's absolutely true. So very dangerous times. And now we haven't even talked about in, in this whole conversation the issue of climate change. Right. The I, 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 there was a time in 07, 08. Yeah when even finance seemed to get what a danger this was, then the crash comes, Yeah, and now it's like it's not even on the political agenda. Well, you know, the only I, no I would argue the only reason finance cared about climate change in 07, 08 is that we were having an oil boom then. And whenever oil prices go up, um, finance gets more interested in green technologies because they suddenly seem um, to make sense economically. If you think about... Um, uh, wind, you know, I, I don't know the exact figures, but wind power, say, costing, um, you know, the equivalent of $40 a barrel of oil or what, whatever the, the equivalent would be, um, those technologies become more cost-effective as the price of oil soars. And so that's why you saw a lot of interest. But then when oil, which is very cyclical, right, very volatile, when it tanks, you see all the money flow out of the sector, um, out of the clean energy sector. And I expect that's how it would be now. It's too bad because... You know, one of we haven't really talked about what are the alternatives to this financial, financialized capitalism. One of the kind of amazing, like, duh, low-hanging fruit things that we could do is have a green stimulus program. Um, Joe Stiglitz has talked about this. Many others have talked about it. It would be the easiest, quickest, smartest way to actually create some real growth in the economy, transition off of fossil fuels, um, uh, you know, just just implementing the best technologies available today in all homes and schools and institutions would create so many jobs and so much growth that it could really help jumpstart the economy in a, in a true ground-up way. There's no better example of the complete irrationality of this system that that would even make Wall Street money. Right. I mean, you know, capitalists would make money out of a new green economy. Right. But the politics of it is you're going to have to take on the Koch brothers. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of money being made now in war, and right. getting, I should say getting ready for war and wars. Right. And uh, as rational as that is, and, and, and it, it wouldn't even be anti-capitalist. Like you could have a big green economy, people could make money out of yeah. it. 
And in fact, China, and you can't, you can't, you know, China's China's to some extent doing it. Is is starting to try and do this. I mean, I have a lot of you know issues with China policy-wise, but one thing that they've they've been very smart on is making these green technologies, green batteries, um, solar panels, wind, making these strategic sectors, and really you know connecting the dots between workers, uh, businesses, funders, job creators, et cetera. So get into the heads of these people who are making <laughs> these decisions. Do I have to? <laughs> They have kids, yeah. they have grandkids, they gotta live in this world. I know they're making an orgy level of money, but they've made it. And I know I'm not suggesting that there's ever an end of wanting to make money. Once I've asked people who have ridiculous amounts of money, yeah. why are you still trying to make more money? And, and it comes down to, because it, yeah. it's who I am, what yeah. else am I gonna do? I mean, there's some that decide to start giving it away and do philanthropy. And uh, But even them are still, very concerned about making more and making more, but but more importantly, how do you, how do do you ask how do these people go home at night and not be concerned about climate crisis and war and financial meltdown? How do they not worry about that? You know, I think it's it's a worry that if it exists, it gets kind of tucked in a back pocket some somewhere. One thing that I've been hearing from a lot of very wealthy people these days, since the election actually, is that they all have escape plans, you know? I mean, uh, there was a very interesting story actually in The New Yorker by Evan Osnos, um, who, who uh, I knew actually when he was a reporter in China, and he covered the ways in which rich people are buying up ranches in New Zealand and you know, creating bunkers in the Bahamas or wherever they're going, um, thinking that they're somehow gonna be able to um, avoid the apocalypse when it comes. There's actually um, a business that operates in New York um, it's a boat that will come. You can apparently pre-buy, this sounds like the biggest scam in history to me, but you can pre-buy tickets if there's some political crises or some like danger moment and they'll come and pick you up and whisk you up the Hudson. Now, you know, which, which, which rich people think that there's going to be their seat waiting when there's a real problem? I don't know. But um, I think that, that that goes to this idea that the wealthy have come to believe, frankly, like, you know, uh, the French, perhaps, in the 18th century, that... Um, Après-moi le deluge. Exactly, you know, I, that um, I'm I'm over here, I'm away from this larger... You realize you're quoting Marx again. I know, gosh, am I, I'm going to get fired from the Financial Times if I'm not if I'm not careful. Maybe you should edit That's that. He, he was once asked to define the mentality of a capitalist. And his, he said it's après-moi la deluge. Yeah. So I think that there's a lot of that. But I also hear, Frank, I mean, I once asked Carl Icahn, like, you have whatever it is, $20 billion, like, why, do you, what, why are you still doing this? He's like, what else would I do? What am I going to do, play shuffleboard? I mean, I think, you know, they could be, in some ways, it's not even about the money anymore. It's about the, the game. It's about keeping score. He could be trading fish. He could be trading companies. It's all the same thing. And they're older, a lot of them, too. They figure yeah. they'll be gone soon. I think so. But they still want to win before they do. Okay, in our next segment, we're going to talk about artificial intelligence because I'm thinking that other than escaping to New Zealand and wherever else <laughs> I'm going, I'm figuring a bunch of robots are gonna do all the work and I don't much have to care about people that might be in flooded Bangladeshes or even working people throughout the United States. Uh, you know, As long as AI can go make the stuff, what do I need all these people for? So in the next segment, we'll talk about AI and maybe artificial intelligence for whom, which is what Stephen Hawking said not long before he died. Uh, so please join us for the next segment of our interview with Rana Furahar 
on reality asserts itself on the Real News Network.